Welcome everyone to The Lighthouse, a podcast series dedicated to providing advanced financial planning and wellness insights to the clients and families we serve. My name is Jack Butler and my business partner, John Stanford and I are financial advisors with the Hatteras Wealth Management Group at UBS, located at 6100 Fairview Road in Charlotte, North Carolina. Our guest on the show today is Leanne McCormick, Senior Strategist with the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services Group with UBS. Liam, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, thank you. It's, it's really good to be here. We're glad to have you. And we're also glad to have a great philanthropy platform here at UBS with experts like you who can help guide us and our clients through the process of charitable giving. But before we dive into your questions, Liam, can you just share with us uh, an overview of your background and how it led to where you are today at UBS? Oh, well, I, I can. I'd be delighted to. And it, it's a strange story, I, especially this morning as we hear news coming from Ukraine. I spent the first 16 years of my life in the British Army in the infantry, training soldiers predominantly, preparing them for conflict and, and a life that took me around the world and exposed me to a lot of the challenges that the world faces. And then towards the end of that time, I, I did a secondment with the, an organization in the UK called the Prince's Trust. The Prince's Trust is a youth charity. It's one of Prince Charles's primary charity working with disadvantaged young people. And I went in to bring some of the knowledge I'd gained from being in the military around leadership, communication, uh, identity, and, and, and helping people to stand up and take responsibility for their lives. And it was predominantly working with inner city young people. And then I went back into the army after my secondment finished and realized that um, I felt I was in the wrong place. I really enjoyed doing that. And so that really led me to leave. And I ended up going back into that space, working in programs and developing a leadership development program, really, for young people. But it doesn't matter how great your programs are, you need money. And so I was increasingly working with foundations, with high net worth individuals, raising money, working with them. And interestingly, while I was doing this program, they were going, oh, we've got, we, you know, our kids are um, got some problems as well. Can you come and help there? So I started to also do these, work in these two spaces of disadvantaged young people who are isolated, often forgotten by the world and really struggling with their identity, but then also working with some really high net worth kids who had, for various different reasons, were in a similar space, felt isolated because wealth is isolating and they felt they had nowhere to go and they didn't know what their identity was because, you know, dad was this big wig or they had this big family name. And so I was in that space. I was fortunate enough to marry an American and we moved to America about three years ago. And basically UBS were looking for a philanthropy and family advisor in, in, in the South. And I applied and I got the job. It's been a really interesting transition coming from both the program side, then also on the fundraising side, working with families, working with foundations. I never knew this job existed. So it's been a real delight and pleasure to, to be here and be part of the UBS team. About, I've got six colleagues spread around the country. It's been, I've been here for nearly two years and it's been a fantastic ride. Well, we're, we're certainly glad to have you here at UBS and, and also um, you know, privileged to, to have and work with people like you who uh, have worked so hard to make the world a better place. And not only that, but also just good people in general in the sense that uh, you were patient enough the other day to deal with all of our technology issues when we tried to record this the first time around. So the audience listening, Liam is, is a good man, and I can, I can uh, certainly um, attest to that. So, But getting back to philanthropy, it's obviously one of the first things that we discuss with clients when we build their financial plans. 
A lot of clients have organizations and causes that they already support, whether they're nationally or local charity groups. But sometimes though, clients know they want to engage in philanthropy or charitable giving, but have no idea where to give or how to start. So if someone's listening to this right now and is in that boat, what would be their first actionable step towards incorporating giving into their plan? Well, I'm going to say, get hold of a UBS philanthropy advisor. That's the first thing you should do. No. And also we have a thing called the philanthropy compass, which is a fantastic, it's a comprehensive document. So that's the sales pitchy bit. You know, we've got some great resources to help people in that position. But in answering the question, sometimes it's, it's easy to look at where people get it wrong. And so what often the route into philanthropy, when people are in that boat, they may start by setting up a donor advised fund or putting in place a vehicle, some kind of financial vehicle to do the philanthropy first, which is a logical thing to do from a financial planning perspective. But it doesn't always work in terms of if you don't know what your vision is, you don't know what your goal is, you may select the wrong vehicle that won't enable you to achieve the goals that you have to do and then and rethink. So example that might be that you think, okay, let's use a donor advised fund. And if the donor advised fund is, is a really efficient way of doing your philanthropy. But the, the challenge with it is you lose control of your asset that goes in there, is maintained, has lots and lots of advantages, and it's quite restricted in where you can give. So if you wanted to do overseas giving, if you wanted to give to individuals, maybe set up a scholarship, all of those things are possible, but they're complicated. So a family uh, foundation, a private family foundation might be a better place to start. And so, because that gives you more flexibility, you get less tax advantage. So what we encourage people to do is, is start with a vision and sort of take that step back and say, you know, what is it that you want to do with your philanthropy? And it, you don't have to have that completely tied down, but it's, you know, is it local? Is it something local you want to do? Is it national? Is it international? You know, is it in education? And then we have a number of tools that will help you focus your vision and, and actually go from a concept into something which is reality. And then you can start thinking, okay, well, this is what we want to do. This is where we want to do it. And this is how we want to do it. And then you can think, okay, so what is the best financial tool to do that? What are the best ways of resourcing that? Is it through cash? Is it through appreciated securities? Or maybe I can put a part of my business interest into a donor advised fund. So it sort of brings it all together, I feel, in terms of and looking at even longer term, what's my reason for doing this? Is it just for me? But actually, I want to involve my children and my grandchildren in this. So I want this legacy component, as we talk about in the process with UBS of the wealth way, legacy is the final bucket. And so it really speaks into that component in terms of what, you know, is it just something I'm going to go, do in my lifetime or is it something I'm going to set up for my grandchildren? Well, you bring up an interesting point there. And I just wanted to ask about, you know, when it comes to legacy and the Wealthway framework, we, you know, talk about with the, you know, liquidity, having, you know, cash on hand for your short-term expenses, longevity, which is the, the bucket of money for retirement. And then the legacy, which is for, you know, the, the money that's going to be left uh, to pass along to others or other causes that you care about. So on the legacy piece, what would you say to a client who, would just, you know, tend to think, well, I know I'll probably never run out of money, but I'll just, you know, cross that bridge when I'm no longer here and uh, whatever's left over, we'll give that. I mean, is there a benefits to giving now versus later at, at death? I mean, can you kind of walk through the, the the different dynamics there? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a very common question as well. And what I would encourage all, everyone to do is, is working with your UBS client, you can, your UBS advisor, you can actually have a plan put in place and they can calculate and say, look, this is how much money you're going to, you need for the rest of your life. And then you can adjust that. And then you can see, actually, there's an excess here. So it doesn't matter how, what, the, there is a huge amount of money. And a little phrase, which you'll often hear in the philanthropy space is, do your giving while you're living. And the point to that is that you know where it's going, you know, you know who it's going to. And so I, sometimes like if you're get passing, do you trust potentially a generation of kids you've never met, you never know what they're going to be doing. Somebody else is going to be doing and giving for you. So I feel you've earned the money and you know where you want it to go. So there's a real advantage of doing it while you're alive. And one of the ways to potentially do that would be to do uh, a charitable lead trust, for example, where you put the assets into a trust and the assets stay in there. And while they're in the trust and while you're alive, that money, it spits out philanthropic dollars, basically, which, which you can allocate. And then on your passing, the what remains goes, goes to your heirs. So that way you can still pass on effectively, but you can do the giving while you're living and you know, see where it goes. And, and it can be for a lot of people, a second career almost. And there's a great book, which I always recommend called The Second Mountain. And, and it's by David Brooks. And he basically points out there's a lot of people successfully climb the first mountain of career of, you know, what we did term success, creating wealth. But they get to the top of the mountain, they've done all these things and thought, I thought that was going to be it, but it's not. And there's a sense of, well, what now? I've still got, you know, plenty to do, plenty to give. I've got all of this knowledge. So what now? And actually, the, the second journey into more, maybe, I wouldn't say purpose, but certainly, you know, what's the meaning of all this wealth I've created? And this is where, again, there's a legacy part. So that, so I'm going a bit off track here, but that's one of the things it falls into. And if you know that, then there's, as I say, there are quite a few different ways to help make sure that you can do the, do some of the giving while you're alive, set up a foundation and you know, start educating your children and grandchildren in that way so that it's not just a, a big windfall when you die, but you've actually educated, you've brought your family along with you, you've transferred your values and said, look, this is something I really care about. You've connected with them because they said, hey, dad, you know, I really love education, but I'm really aware of the fact that you know, there's such disparity in that community. We're really wealthy. I've got, I was at college with this kid from this background, and I want to do something more in the social justice space. And you go, okay, well, let's, let's explore that. How can we do that? So it creates opportunities for people to have conversations as well. So there's a lot of advantage of doing it while you're alive because you just have, you know, you have the influence and the connection and, and build that second career. And you're also there to see the impact as well. And I really yeah. love that concept of the second mountain because I think all too often, we have a lot of clients who they either, uh, whether they sell a business or once they finally retire, they've been working so hard for decades. And all of a sudden, there's just this massive you know, pile of money there that's staring at them as they're approaching into a, a new phase of their life. And once they retire and, and, and trying to find, to your point, uh, maybe a different purpose or, or a, the, the sense of defining what all that really means, I think is incredibly important. And so I think that the second mountain book that you referenced is, is certainly an interesting one to look at. 
But let's kind of talk about, again, I mean, I think that ties into your first points about the, the vision, again, and how important it is to have a vision. You talked about some of the tools, the resources that we have to help clients articulate those visions, because I think that's where it all starts. So what are some of those tools and resources? And then I just can't help but think about how do you help a family articulate a vision that's aligned when maybe everyone has a different opinion on what's important to them, or a client doesn't really want to divulge all the intricacies of their financial life with their kids or even grandkids for that matter. That's again, very common and something we deal with a lot in terms of, we have an analogy which we use in terms of the light switch. Some people do not disclose the enormity of the wealth. And it's understandable because, you know, your kids know you're wealthy, but they may not know the extent of the wealth. And we talk, the analogy we use is the dimmer switch. You don't want to go into a kid's bedroom like I do in the morning, flick on the lights and say, get out of bed now. And the lights are on. It's like, oh, what's what's happening? We use the dimmer. So you sort of do the dimmer switch and slowly turn it up. And so they start, okay, this is a much more pleasant way to wake up, but also it's less frightening and less like, oh my goodness me. But again, like my previous answer is that we work with a lot of clients who, you know, with the best intentions in the world have put in place a really strong plan, an estate plan that is fair, that is equal, that is efficient from tax perspective. And it's, it's, it's really well done, but it's not communicated to the next generation. They may, the next generation may be aware of it. Oh, mum and dad, mum and dad have got it sorted. You go, okay. And I've sat in a room with clients and said, well, that's great. Do you know you're, you're a beneficiary? Like, oh yeah, I'm a beneficiary. I know that. I said, what does that mean? And -and so-and-so is a trustee. Do you know what that means? How do you interact with the trustee? What is the trustee's role? How do you get money out from a trustee? How can, can you fire a trustee? Oh, I, I don't know. So th- there's a lot of unknowns in there. And so all of the evidence that we work with kind of points to the fact that the more people understand and are prepared for the role of that transition, the better they're going to be when it comes to the actual transition taking place, particularly where, and it doesn't really matter what the number is, if I'm honest, every family, however well, however tight they are, however well-intentioned they are, you know, you don't have to open too many papers to see people squabbling over a very small amount of money mm-hmm. because until it actually happens, no one really knows where they are. They don't know how they feel about something. And so one of the common problems and is that, For instance, you know, this is a bit of a cliche, but you've got, let's say, two children, family business. One of the kids is in the business. He's running the business and and he's heavily involved in it. The other one is not in the business. He's doing something else, which is his own desire. And the sort of family talks about the business when they get together. And there's a sense that 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 is a favored son because he's the one in there. He's doing it. And when the will comes out, turns out. Because he's so involved, he's built it. He's got more of the pie than the other person. And it just, it feels with wealth and allocation of wealth, it feels like allocation of love, even if it's not, even if it's, that's not the intention. So I feel that there are two components to this. There's the, there's a part of, of fairness, which is process. So for instance, if we all understand the process by which a selection is made, I'm coming from a sports background, you know, I know that if I turn up at this place here, I pay my fee, I go through the trials, I do everything, I might get picked for the team. If I don't get picked for the team and I find out this other person who wasn't even at the trial, oh, well, he's friendly, he's dad's part of it, and 
that's not a good process. It's not fair. That is not fair. But if you understand the process, you understand what the criteria is, and you say, hey, look, this is why we've made this decision, it feels a lot fair. Even if you feel a little bit, un- it's not good, but you, you understand it, and you have a chance to go back to your parents and say, I understand why you've done that. And they go, look, we love you. We're going to do this, but so-and-so has done this. So there's that, that fairness component to it. One thing I was just going to say real quick is that, I mean, these are just all incredibly important topics that I think probably one of the number one reasons why people don't broach the subject, whether it's with family members or even for, you know, planning out a vision for what they want to accomplish is that at times it can all seem very complicated. And then this, the simplest solution is to just deal with it when you're no longer here. Yeah, do well, anything. That's yeah. someone else's problem. It's going to be their decision, and and they just you know I've I've seen over the years where clients can just avoid and, and they just tend to put that elephant in yeah. the room back into the corner to deal with it at a later date because they don't want to have those types of conversations. They don't want to maybe unearth any uh, sensitivities or emotions around you know maybe some some tensions within a, a family and whatnot. So I guess, um, and then not only that, so there's the whole emotional yes. component of this, but then there's the, the technical component of it where you have all these different vehicles and you mentioned Chevrolet lead trust and donor advice funds. And we'll get into that in a second, but all of that can be very overwhelming yeah. as well. You mentioned your client that with the beneficiary, they, they didn't really understand kind of what the dynamics of that entails. So how can we keep this simple is, is, is what yeah. I'm asking. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a really good, good question. And it is actually very simple. I think if you think about what you're picking there's this false sense that no conflict is good you know if we don't talk if there's no conflict the relationship's fine if i'm not arguing with my wife we must be good it's actually false because it may mean you're suppressing stuff and we're we're building up a dam that's going to burst at some point and be rather than just being a small little thing we can fix hey honey stop leaving your socks on the floor it's really annoying me to something which then all these little things build up and it's a big explosion. So what are the things we try and do as advisors is we bring the family together. We bring everybody together and have a family meeting. We've got a number of tools we use to facilitate conversation. So, But we don't start with the numbers. We start with back with your original question was about values. So how do we connect people? Because we have something called the purposeful dialogue cards, and they're just a series of cards with values on there. And the, the exercise itself isn't particularly focused on a particular value. It's a tool to get families talking. So, I mean, if I said to you now, Jack, you know, what are your top four values? I think you could probably pull off four off the top of you might be able to get there. But your knowledge of values is going to be limited to what you say. So if we have a whole, if we have 33 values in front of you, you can look down and say, Hmm. Now, what are my values? You know, well, actually, I like integrity or growth. Growth is important to me and maybe accountability. And so the family sit together, they pick them, they condense them down to maybe three values and I get them all to select one. Every time I've done it as a family, no matter how broad they are or how on the outward appearance diverse they are in terms of opinions, they always, everyone always selects at least one, which is the same and maybe two. Because when you you grow up in a family, you have a family culture, and you're communicating your values the whole time, how you spend your money, how you spend your time together. So what you're doing with all these things that are precious to you are communicating values. So if you always have a family holiday together, maybe twice a year, you go and it's, it's, everyone gets there. It may be an explosion once you get there, but everybody turns up, demonstrates that family is important. 
you know, connection is important. So we do that exercise, we collect it and we feed it back. And the, every time I've done it, there's been a powerful moment, maybe around where one of the kids, in that example I gave earlier on, say, oh, well, I'm not part of the family business. So I feel like dad, mama, I'm sorry, I'm not part of the business. I've been to, and then the parents have gone, no, we love what you're doing. We love the fact you've been doing this X, Y, and Z. We've seen it and we, and we value you because of that. And there's been, it's been an emotional moment because I've gone, oh, I, I never knew. I assumed there was a kind, because we always joke in our family that if you're not part of the business, are you part of the family? And it's a little joke, but there's a reality to that. And so it, these very simple moments, you find a moment of connection and an opportunity to be authentic and trust. So we're trying to build trust. We're trying to build the muscle of communication so that these bigger things around how do we talk about money, which we, we're terrified of, can be easier. And we have some tools with those as well. Our family conversation kits, opportunities for parents to share their story, make it easier rather than, you know, it's like you're at the dinner table and, and grandma goes, hey, Liam, you know, what are you doing after college? Or, what are you, right, okay, I, I don't know. It, there are some really fun little tools. It's not grandma asking. It's not mum and dad asking. There's some things in there. And then there's the money kit as well, which is a great conversation kit, but enables people to think, hey, what was your first memory of money? You know, what? And I mean, it, and, and that in itself, but what's the first, what's the first dollar you earned? What's the first thing you bought? You know, those are kind of questions because, it, again, it gives you a conversation into people's attitudes about money and wealth and takes a lot of the, the conflict out of it. it. doesn't remove it, but it makes it more of a facilitated space. So if we start with the dialogue, do some exercises in that first meeting around that, and then we move to the more complicated stuff. And I think it's uh, it's so important to have a catalyst for uh, improving that, or, or at least facilitating that communication, because uh, I've had another uh, podcast guest before say that the biggest misperception of communication is the illusion that's taken place. <laughs> yes. And so yeah. he said, everybody assumes these different right dynamics with one another, but may not may or may not be true. So that that's very important to lay that out. We've kind of talked about the qualitative aspects of giving and how people can get more aligned in that regard. Let's talk more about the different vehicles that you touched on earlier: the donor advised funds, a charitable lead trust. Just what are some of the high level strategies you've seen clients use uh, in, in recently, and mm-hmm. uh, and also maybe how it pertains to the whole estate planning environment that we're in currently and in yeah, tax so, environment that matter too yeah so i, I obviously caveat i'm not uh, advanced planning colleagues are the ones who really know those vehicles inside out but how i have seen it used in the conversation that we have is there are, the donor advice fund very simply is a charitable fund and i think of it as a charitable bank account so let's suppose you've had some liquidity event or you've got some highly appreciated asset that's where they're particularly effective and you want to be charitable you can put that asset into that donor advice fund and it is a gift it's effectively a in law it is a gift you're giving it away so we work with fidelity npt and uh, renaissance charity charity as well so the gift goes to them it's managed by the financial advisor so it can grow so the great advantage of that it goes into that account if it's an appreciated security you get the tax deduction, I think it's at 30% for appreciated security. You get that deduction, it goes into that account. And there's no immediate requirement for you to spend that money. So if you're at the start of your journey, you don't really know what it is you want to do. And you get that instantly in the year that you need it. 
but then you can get to disperse the funds over a longer time period, allowing you to think through a little bit more about what it is you want to do. So that's a great vehicle for someone who has maybe got a whole bunch of different charities they support. They like writing checks and it's a real palaver chasing down all of the uh, different receipts you need for that. It's all done in the one place and it's just a way of coordinating your giving. The challenge with it is, as I said, it is gone. And so you lose control of it and there are some limitations. So an example of, of that is we had a client recently who wanted to give to the NRA and they are now, because of various reasons, you, you know, with NPT, for example, you can't, they refuse to give that gift to them. So there are some challenges around that because the, the NRA are out of good standing. And so that couldn't be done because that's, they've chosen not to do that. So the, there is some, you know, for legacy, it's difficult it's not impossible, but it's harder to, you know, transfer it to the next generation and beyond. So, and then so that the family foundation, the private foundation is another tool which some people use to keep control of the asset. But as you know, in finance, to gain something, you have to give something up. And so you get less of a deduction. It's about 20% deduction for appreciated securities, but you gain control of the asset. And you also have this 5% distribution rule. So every year you have to give away the 5%. Now, that 5% could go if you have a donor, this is where donor advised funds and foundations work quite well together because if you have your own donor advised funders, you can grant to your own donor advised fund. If you just haven't got around to doing the 5% that year, you can grant it into your donor. Advice. You can't go the other way. You can't put donor advised funds into a foundation. So those are the two. The other two, which we often see in terms of estate planning, are the charitable remainder trust, particularly again for families particularly people who are concerned about what are my costs over the next year. I don't want to give all my money away because I don't know how long I'm going to live. I need some income. So a charitable remainder trust enables you to put some assets into a trust. Those that you have a set rate and it will provide an income for you, like an annuity for your life. And that will produce that annuity. And at the end of your life, the remainder in the trust, and it has to be, I think, I can't remember the exact, I'm not a quote percent, but what remains has to be a certain level goes into goes to charity. It goes to be a charity of your choice, but again, it could be a family foundation or you could be your family uh, donor advised fund. So it's very, it's a great way of just if you want the income, you're uncertain, you want to sort of hedge your you know income. It's a great way to do that. But you could could also be income for for family members as well. And the last one I just gave is similar. The flip side of that, which I mentioned before, was the the charitable lead trust, which we sometimes see used for really passing on assets to the next generation. But while you're alive, it goes into the trust. The money spits out uh, philanthropic dollars, which could be given to charity. And then the assets in the trust, once you pass, go to the intended beneficiaries. Those are the four main ones. But again, it really comes down to what it is you're, you're trying to do. You want to do some giving while you're living, or do you want to secure your have a secure income and then do it when you pass? So those are the again coming back to the thinking of how it's done and, and why what it is you want to achieve with your philanthropy. Yeah, and I think that to your point, that's why you have to start off with that that big picture conversation, that values conversation to really understand what's the most appropriate vehicle because they all have they all have pros and cons to them. And then you know once we have that better understanding of what someone's trying to accomplish going forward, then we can then bring in. The, uh, the experts as needed, as you said, to you know, help provide guidance around which 
strategy is, is the best to execute on those on those goals. But I, I, just last couple of questions here, Liam. One, how to deal with a concern that many of our clients have shared before in the past, and that's just not only passing on their values to children and grandchildren, but also the fears around what if the children and grandchildren aren't maybe equipped to handle that type of responsibility, or maybe some are and some aren't. Any thoughts around how people can pass along those values to future generations and do so in the most uh, efficient way possible? The first thing is that you're playing out your life in front of an audience the entire time. It's not like, oh, I'm now going to focus on my children, my grandchildren. So we're, we're constantly being watched how we do things. And so the, the first thing I say, it, you start straight away. It's not like, oh, they're getting out. They're now 21. We need to talk to them about values. The die is cast. And so being conscious of some of those things in terms of we often talk about we've got uh, money messages and things like that. So how do we communicate to our children importance of money? Actually, you know, and it might, might be something really simple like, they got a, a new car for, for their 18th or their final year at high school. They smash it and you go, oh, well, that's silly. And you go and buy them another one. You can, as a pretty extreme example. But the idea is that money's not an issue here. We just get another. There need to be consequences. You know, if you lose your sneakers, your brand new sneakers, well, what are you, you going to do about it? Because I bought you those. Let's go down to Marshall's or, or a secondhand shop and, and get another set because you lost and you're going to pay for them. So how early communication of messages. But more practically, one of the things that we encourage is bringing the kids into the decisions around philanthropy early on. One of the things we've we've seen work effectively is like having a junior board, if you set up a donor advised fund or a family foundation, having a junior board, allocating them a certain amount of money, certain amount of resource, which they can go out and allocate and then help them think through the processes. How are we going to select the organizations, what criteria are you going to use? How are you going to keep those account then accountable for the money that you've given? So you're sort of giving them these responsibility at an early age and, and actually sort of communicating financial messages to them as well. What's the budget? What proportion of it is it going to, to do what you want to do? And how well have they spent it? So you're, you're with them and you're giving them the opportunity. Because another thing I often hear from clients is they say, oh, our kids just aren't ready to inherit. I go, oh, that's really interesting. So what have you done to prepare them? Well, we haven't done anything. Okay. So we have uh, some educational tools with Edify. We're just relaunching and rebranding the Edify uh, resources, which are online tools for for young people to come in and actually all the way from uh, elementary school, all the way through post-college to pitch the right level of financial education. So along with that, there's a you know, there's a financial education that goes on, but we're most of us are experiential learners, and we by doing something, having responsibility for something is the most, in our opinion, the best way to teach values. Because when you're responsible for something, you have to make decisions, and it's hard making decisions, especially when you don't know things. You maybe learn you don't know things you thought you knew. So using a foundation and creating those opportunities to work alongside your kids is a great way to transfer values. And to you know, particularly cross generation where grandma and the kids are involved. One of the last thing I was saying is I saw an example where the parents or grandparents had set up a donor advised fund, given the grandchildren some resources. And as they, at a young age, and as they started to you know, allocate the funds, what they, so the unintended consequence, they realized that as the kids were giving out money and they were growing up and increasing their, the amount of money, 
organizations were building relationships with the kids because they knew they were the ones responsible for them. And so actually they were inviting them out for dinner. They were taking them on a donor trip. And there's actually these, are, if you think about a lot of the people that run not-for-profits, they're pretty impressive people. They have a great set of values. Who do you want your kids spending time with? Do you want them to be courted by these people, them speaking into your life, their lives, as well as you speaking into their lives, and they, they're educating them into the way of the world, exposing them to other. So that's a really subtle way of helping them be exposed to the world, but in a, through people, yes, they have an objective to raise money, but they're trying to show them, hey, this is what a food kitchen looks like. These are the issues we're facing. This is what you know, poverty looks like in low-income communities or whatever the, the cause, there's environment. Here's the big problem. And so other people are educating them. They're learning. They're learning influence. They're building their networks. So uh, there's some subtle ways in which you're, you're helping your children get values spoken into them in lots of different... The health warning on this is that there are organizations out there which are their total focus. They prey on what they might call trust fund kids. And they say, look, your wealth is illegitimate. You know, it's done through this. And they burden them with a sense of this is a... Uh, you're tainted by this wealth. You need to give it all away now. There are people targeting those kids as well. So we need you, you do need a defensive strategy. So actually, let me explain what, how we are and how we do we work. So that, that's, alarm, that's alarming, but also um, I mean it's important to know, right? Because yeah. there, there are there are people out there that will try and take advantage and will will try to lead you know heirs or others astray in terms of uh, you know, from the original goals and intent that someone laid out. But just lastly, to close up, Liam, the Philanthropy Services Group recently published a list of its uh, top 10 trends oh, yeah. for Philanthropy for 22. And I know we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about those 10, but what are the, the one or two that you think resonate the most with those who are planning on making gifts this year? And how is giving going to change in your mind in the next 5, 10, and 20 years? The number one thing on the philanthropy list was trust-based philanthropy. And I think that's exciting. And I think it's also easy to understand. So what it actually means, if you think about traditional philanthropy, you know, an organization approaches a philanthropist and say, hey, I've got this great program. Can you give me some money? The philanthropist says, yes. Can you fill out an application form? I want to know, you know what you're going to do, how many people you're going to help, and you, they go away and they come up with a, you know, a very detailed plan, probably of what we call theory of change and exactly how we're going to do it and how we're going to spend every dollar. And you apply. And the philanthropist looks at it and goes, oh, thanks very much. Not happy about this. Actually, there's another organization we're going to support. And they walk away. We've done all that for nothing. And trust-based philanthropists, when you have a, we talk about building relationships with philanthropists and say, actually, we understand you and we know you. And over a period of time, actually, we're going we're gonna to give you a 10-year grant. We're going to give you a five-year grant because we want the most of our money to go to the field. And if we're making you fill out reams of paper, do all of this you know, complicated form filling, and then we say, oh, by the way, we don't want to spend any money on overhead. You go, well, how am I meant to fill out the form if I haven't got any money for overhead? So the idea is that you trust the organizations, you build these organizations, and you bring other people into that platform and actually set them free, particularly in COVID. We need to, a lot of the problems in the world need money now. They need an affection now, not in six months. And so particularly around food banks, uh, people losing their jobs, they realized they just needed to get money into the community fast to solve some of these problems. So I think that trust, I don't think that's going to go away. I think there's going to be more openness, particularly as data is so much easier to collect with you know, technology. So I think that 
building those those periods of trust and less less form filling, less applications, make it really simple for organizations to go, this is what we're going to do. Here's our theory of change. By doing this, we're going to help this many people and this is the outcome. That for me is, is one of the primary ones. Another one, which I can't remember which number is like three or four, is technology. You can't avoid the fact that technology is you know, coming into every aspect of our life. And a great example might be with mobile phones, for example. You know, mobile phone technology has revolutionized microfinance in, in places where there are no banks in sub-Saharan Africa. You know, there, there, there are families who days walk to a bank, but they do have a mobile phone. And we're talking a digital mobile phone. We're not talking about you know, a fancy iPhone. We're talking a very basic phone. But by by trade, and if you think about a mobile phone with, in order to use it, you've got to have credit on there, financial, you've got to pay the bill. But that's fungible. A credit is fungible. So you can pay people in mobile phone credit. So people have developed this network and it's revolutionized banking, uh, fintech in places in the world where suddenly you've got millions of people all with, you know, 20, 25, $30 maybe in on their phones in credit. And they can have bank accounts connected to that and they can they can trade those 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 currencies. So things like that are changing the way we work. But and particularly what I've been interested in is direct giving. At the moment, you know, in order to give to people in other places, it goes through an intermediate, it goes to an organization, that organization decides who it's going to go to. There's lots of ways now of giving directly to organizations. So as that technology emerges, I think that is going to be a fundamental change. Blockchain is one of these, you know words that people keep throwing out there but actually in the philanthropy space it could be really powerful because things one of the biggest challenges in the world is i forget the exact statistics about 40 percent of the world live on land that they can't prove is theirs they've got no documents to say this is my piece of land and so some of this emerging technology is going to enable people to have capital because they can prove that this is their land and it's recorded on a digital database like blockchain and so it, that enables them to borrow. It enables them to do all these other things which you have. Once you have, that's how you can escape poverty. So I think that's going to be one of the sort of macro level things which will have a huge impact on philanthropy. And just within that as well, just data in itself. We're much. There's so many ways to collect data, measuring things, seeing impact of things in really subtle ways, which I think will, at the very local level as well, will will impact philanthropy. It's really, I mean, you, you saw recently in the news that GoFundMe and these, something, you can raise a lot of money in a very short space of time with a decent social media platform and getting a message out. You can connect directly to your donors and say, hey, you know, we need X. It, that is going to be extremely powerful. It is already powerful. It is. And everything you discussed already with us today, Liam, has been incredibly powerful. You can just tell the passion that you have <laughs> philanthropy. And, and, and I, I get fired up about it as well, because this is something that I love the, the process of, of helping clients and both John and I do of helping them better articulate their vision for the future and then making it come into a reality and finding the best avenues to make that happen is, is really what this is all about. So just want to thank you again so much for your time to for joining us on the show today. And also just want to do uh, remind the, the listener that if uh, there's anything in particular that that we discussed today with Liam that you found of interest that you'd like more information on, please feel free to let us know. We're more than happy to put you in touch with Liam and his team if need be. And then also, if you'd like a copy of that Second Mountain book, uh, let us know as well. If you've uh, listened to the episode thus far, you've definitely earned a, a, a book in that regard. And I know I'll be reading it as well. So 
Uh, Liam, just thank you again so much for your time and I really appreciate you, uh, you joining us today. Jack, thank you so much. It's a pleasure and, and I echo your sentiments. It's a real privilege to work with our clients and be in a position to answer questions and help them move forward with the, some of the real heart issues which we all face. So appreciate that. And we've got a, an amazing team of people as well from which an, an expertise we can bring into your situation, whether it's advanced planning or other financial, uh, sorry, philanthropy advisors. So um, thank you for the time today. Thank you. Neither UBS Financial Services, Inc. nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokered services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokered services are separate and distinct different material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business and to carefully read the agreements and disclosures we provide them about the products and services we offer. For more information, please review the following PDF document at UBS.com slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member of FINRA, member SIPC. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author, the securities or views stated herein. Any specific securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. UBS Wealthways is an approach incorporating liquidity, longevity, legacy strategies that UBS Financial Services, Inc. and our financial advisors can use to assist clients in exploring and pursuing their wealth management needs and goals over different time frames. This approach is not a promise or guarantee that wealth or any financial results can or will be achieved. All investments involve the risk of loss, including the risk of loss of the entire investment. Time frames may vary. Strategies are subject to individual client goals, objectives, and suitability.